They say that Kingsley Holgate is the most travelled man in Africa. I beg to differ, especially when it comes to beer people. Today's guest has worked for many breweries in Africa and around the world. I first met Louis Peters when he came back from Tanzania and worked for Bavaria Breweries in Centurion. Let's welcome Louis Peters to the show. My name is Holger and this is Drinks World. Welcome to the show, Louis. Thanks, Holger. Louis, you are a beer guy. You started with SAB, hey? That's correct, years ago, yeah. But I, not but not in Santon. No, not in Santon. <laughs> I I can say that okay, although I did I was a rep for SAB for two years uh, in, in South Africa, but since then uh, my career took me north of the borders. Okay. Yeah. So where did you start repping? Um, with SAB I started at Tanzania Breweries. Um, I was fortunate fortunate enough to live in um, in the northwest of the country in a place called Mwanza and looked after northwest Tanzania. Was that your first job? It was not really my first job. It was my first expat job uh, for SAB. Uh, that was after two years in SAB as a sales rep. Yeah. In Durban or? In, in uh, east of Pretoria at Waltu, yeah, Waltu Depot. Okay. Yeah. And so, just as a normal uh, sales rep? Uh, yeah, I was off-premise rep. Um, and, you know, loved it. I think that was two of the best years of my life. You know, I think being a rep for, S- for a fantastic company like SAB is awesome. I was part of an amazing team, great sales manager. Um, and a lot of the fundamentals that I apply even today came from those, you know, were laid in those two years, you know, mm. uh, through that passion of SAB and the, uh, the drive for excellence. It's amazing, yeah. When I interviewed the guy from Durban Poison, one of the local yes. brewers, he said to me, he's looking for sales reps. He's only got one criteria. Mm. They must have worked for SAB before. Yeah, no, <laughs> because I they can tra- understand that. They train them properly yeah, and they choose yeah. them properly, I guess. Yeah, I guess so, Dan. Yeah. And I think the, the, what, what was amazing about SAB is how they, how they generated that passion in a very short space of time. So there was um, that drive for excellence, extreme competition. You know, um, so you had to be on top of your game to survive in SAB. And, that, okay. and I think that's, that's why they grew to that the massive company that they were, yeah. And how did you get to Tanzania? Did you put I, up your hand? Well, I had a, I had a passion for uh, um, for Africa. I hitchhiked as a student, you know, uh, in the early, early days up to Malawi. So Africa was part of a passion for me. And in my first uh, career discussion, when my boss asked me, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? I said, no, I want to work in the rest of Africa. And at the time it was it was unheard of. You know, it was not, it was not really the done thing. Um, but he, that little seed was there in the, in the back of his mind. And two years later, somebody phoned him and said, you know, we need somebody to develop the sales reps for SAB in Africa. And he said, I've got the guy for you. Mm. Um, and if I was still calling on the customers and the phone call came through and said, do you want to uh, do sales development in Africa for SAB? And I said, yes, done deal. I'm going. Um, and that's how I ended up. So for two years, Holger, I did sales development for SAB in Africa as an independent consultant. I had to resign from SAB. It's strange, but it's true. Um, and then for two years, I did this in all the, at all the, in all the countries where SAB was, was operating at the time. Um, and then they asked me if I wanted to join SAB again. But this time, as you know, uh, I think it was called market development manager for Northwest Tanzania, but effectively regional sales manager. So how do you train people if you don't... Uh I mean, you got to understand the people and the cultures and, and that to train them or not? Is it all, all the same? Well, no, no. I think you must be culturally sensitive. I mean, yeah. There's no, no doubt about that. And um, that's never been something I've struggled with. I tend to uh, connect with, with people quickly. Um, so that's one of my strengths. So I think the, that, that combined with my, my comfortableness in the rest of Africa, you know, um, and my willingness to work with them in the trade uh, and not just in the classroom. So I spent a lot of in-field time coaching sales reps. Um, and, but, and language wasn't a real problem, not in the countries where we operated then uh, at that time. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was easy enough. Okay, I think I'm going to stick my neck out here and say that it's a trait of South Africans, especially the Afrikaners, who are more African than the Africans themselves. <laughs> it's like me, I'm, I'm a German, and I'm yeah. more German than the Germans in Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, yeah. the Afrikaners are often more African than... 
<laughs> than Africans. <laughs> we are we sensitive. We love we love the the continent, yeah. and uh, I think uh, we we can work with people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think I, I would agree with that from what I've seen. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what it means to train people or, or sales people. Well. So, Hogar, you know, it's a passion for me. So, yeah. you know, I can't speak for for other people, but for myself, uh, I love seeing that growth. I think working in the in the rest of Africa in the early days was amazing. Uh, the people I've worked with had very or no exposure, you know, to to development at all. Um, so the the appreciation was just unbelievable, you know, and the and the the rate of growth in skills development or skills uh, um, competence was just which was a phenomenal, you know, and for me, that that uh, I got intense satisfaction from seeing uh, guys go from rep level to sales manager to uh, some of them director level, you know. So it is uh, in a in a relatively short space of time, and and I knew that I had, you know, a little bit of that was due to me, not all, you know, but mm-hmm. that I at least I helped to get the base right, and yeah. um, um, and I have an amazing network of people still in Africa. Uh, you know that we and we keep regular contact. That's so great. Yeah. yeah. So how how do you rep in a country like? I mean, I've never been to Tanzania, but yeah. do you get into a company car and start calling on yeah, outlets? The, you know, the basics are the same. You know, if um, calling is not, you know, so the f- calling is not even negotiable. You need to stick to your call schedule. Make sure you've got the right one. So once that is sorted out. Uh, and you stick to your call schedule, then the rest of sales is not difficult. You know, it's availability, pricing, make sure quality is right, uh, and that your price is right. So if you've got those things in place, then, you know, your halfway battle is halfway won, you know, and then you follow that up with, you know, correct consumer interaction. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, the rest will fall into place. Uh, it's not, it's not, in the theory is not difficult. It's the practice and the discipline mm-hmm. To enforce that, that will make that's the difference between a good rep and a bad rep, you know. Um, so, and I think that's if we stick to that and get that in place first, then the rest will will fall in place. Well, tell us a little bit about the country, Tanzania. Oh, what? Or uh, the beer in Tanzania? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but the, the country is just it's it's God's gift to the world. Let me tell you that for free. It's There's a, a place a, called Serengeti. Yes, then. that was. I was fortunate enough to to have the Serengeti as part of my area. So you can imagine on Friday afternoons, I would say to my wife, it's time to go and visit the lodges in the Serengeti again, make sure availability is right. <laughs> uh, and then we would get in the Land Rover and drive to the to the Serengeti. No, I, I was very fortunate, Olga, that um, I looked after a pristine area. Northwest Tanzania at the time was very undeveloped. It's got two of the great lakes of Africa, Lake Tanganyika and Lake Victoria. It's got the Serengeti. Um, it borders Burundi and Rwanda, um, and Uganda, a fantastic uh, area. Um, and it was underdeveloped from a beer point of view. So, you know, it was really easy to grow volume there uh, just by seeding uh, wholesalers in the correct villages uh, and making sure your supply is good. So we had a, a, just the most amazing three and a half years in that country. Uh, amazing challenges. Road infrastructure was poor. Trucks often got stuck. Um, in the mud in the rainy seasons we had to distribute on ferries in Lake Victoria you know to the different islands uh, ah, it was just it was it was an adventure every day was an adventure in that country it was awesome yeah. so how do you develop beer but uh, I mean if I've got a lodge somewhere obviously mm. I want beer and I'll yes. find beer yes but uh, what do you do make it, it easier it, for me to find it yeah and make sure that you find my beer I mean that's the okay. you know so we did have the opposition Tusker was was quite big and you uh, owned that do you know East African breweries yeah um, so uh, what was your brand uh, so we had a number of brands but Safari Lager would be the the big ones Kilimanjaro uh, okay. Balimi was our regional brand um, now I said to you relationships and availability are the you know the bottom of the the triangle of the sales driver. So, for, but you know, you cannot. You're not in the game if you, if it's not available. So, number one, you must make your beer available as as easy as possible for the consumer, and at the right price. So, and I could do that better than the opposition because you know we had a brewery in Mwanza, um, so I didn't have to travel from Nairobi down to down to Mwanza. So, it is really just a matter of making sure that your supplier routes of are, are fine and you and that you can manage price at the end but to the consumer and then the rest will fall into place so that was it was amazing it was an amazing adventure 
It sounds too good to be true. Yeah. And why did you come back? Um, my contract came to an end after three and a half years. Um, me and my wife then left uh, the business because, you know, we were on contract and came back to SA. Um, and roughly that was when we met when I, yes. when I joined Bavaria Breweries. So you joined Bavaria Breweries as this experienced guy from SAB and who worked yeah. all over the world. <laughs> yeah. So that, and just by accidentally, that was the second time I had to leave SAB. So by now I've, le- I've joined SAB twice and I've left them twice. And I don't think many guys can say that. I finished my career joining SAB three times and left leaving them three times. So just <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and yeah. Bavaria, was that when, who owned Bavaria when you? That was the Swinkles family. So okay. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, the, the current owners. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, listen, that was a great, it was, uh, I missed the beer business. I came back, I was without a job for a while, but did some consulting work here and there, but I missed the beer industry. So I was fortunate enough to get that. And I think I worked for Bavaria for, for four or five years. That long? Yeah. Um, and that was the time that my kids were born. So it was a great time for us to be in South Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I enjoyed the, the exposure to a small family business as opposed to you know, a big corporate. And, and, yeah. and, and by small, you mean, I think they have 5,000 employees. Yeah, yeah, but not in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> not in the South African sphere. Yeah, yeah. What, was, yeah. what was the market like then? I mean, what year was that? Can you that remember? was 2004-ish, you know, okay. the, yeah, 15 yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a long time. It's a long time ago, yeah. So the market was completely different then. There yeah, was so, so that was, you know, really, I actually never worked in South Africa. I, I had those two years with SAB as a rep and then uh, in the four years then with Bavaria. But I didn't really know the South African market that well. Um, and we, we were up against it, if you, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, we, our brands were small. Um, it was relatively unknown. Here in KZN, we had some franchise, but mm. in the rest of the country, it was relatively small. So we had a big drive at the time to get into the key accounts, um, a big off-premise drive. You know, to, mm. um, and I think we were fairly successful. And I think the the secret weapon there for us was the Bavaria non-alcoholic. Mm. It was, uh, that's a, it's a great and, brand. And, and that was imported? It was imported, well, yeah. Was the brewery still going at the time when you worked there? Yeah, we... We brewed the Bavaria Draft um, and the, the premium, uh, Bavaria Premium, I think it was. Yeah. In Centurion. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Mm. But we, a lot of my effort went into making sure that we get uh, ship Bavaria non-alcoholic into Cape Town. Mm. We shipped some containers into uh, PE uh, and Durban Direct so that um, cutting down on the cost, you know, transporting mm. just from Durban to Pretoria uh, and then back down again. So I think people forget how long Bavaria non-alcoholic has been on the market. the market. Yeah, yeah. So that's 15 years. Yes, and it's during our time that we got into Woolies and, and those, okay. uh, you know, those key accounts where, where I still see, it, you know, it's still doing very well. Mm. And if you think I started with Bavaria in 94, so that's wow. 25 years ago. Yeah. And we built quite a strong following in KZN on on the back of the draft and especially the light. The light light we did extremely well. And that was mainly because I believe because they had a zero tolerance Mm. to drinking and driving in KZN. And um, I think the Bavaria light did much better than than the lager. And um, And it was actually light in alcohol, unlike at the time. I don't think there were any other beers that were actually light in alcohol. The Vintuk Light was there. Okay, but one other then. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't the. It, it was a bit of ahead of its time, I think. Mm. Um, the Bavaria Light. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then you lasted there for four years, five years, and yeah. then. Um, then I got uh, a call from SAB again and say, you know, they were looking at uh, again for a sales development manager for Africa, and I said, well, yeah, you know, I've been there, done that, so. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get that job. So I, I moved from Durban back to Johannesburg to join the head office there um, and spent 11 months uh, doing sales development across Africa again, um, where I mostly worked on the sales blueprint for Africa. You know, what, what does sales look like in Africa and, uh, and with all best practice, you know, in, in one bundle. So uh, that was a great project and I loved it. Uh, but it was, only, it was only 11 months. And then I got the phone call to ask if I want to go and join the business in South Sudan for SAB. Okay, tell us about South Sudan, because that's not a holiday destination. No, it's like not a holiday Serengeti. destination. And I, uh, you know, my philosophy has always been, it's it's all of us, me and my wife and the kids, or none of us. So so by then you, you had two kids? I had two kids. They were one aged, wife? Uh, one wife. 
I'm glad to say that I still have that wife. But, uh, the kids at the time were, you know, they were um, one and three or something like that. Okay. But fortunately in South Sudan, there's a Woolies and... Yeah, but that is as rough as you can get. It is, it is the hardest place I've ever lived. I think I underestimated... Um, really how not only how, how difficult it would be to live there, but also how dangerous it is. Um, so, okay, I moved there with at the time of independence. I was lucky enough to be there on Independence Day when they seceded from Sudan, which was a, an amazing uh, experience, that unbridled joy, uh, you know, of the South Sudanese to, to be in charge of their own destiny. Um, and it was, the country was full of hope. Uh, it was, it, and we, we all hoped that it would turn out well. It, okay, it didn't, Turned out that way. We had a brewery there. Um, so a country with hope needs a brewery. You cannot have a country without a brewery. You don't forget airlines, forget all that. You need a brewery, my <laughs> friend. Uh, so the, we were in the beer category: spirits, water, and soft drinks. So it was a you know multi beverage portfolio that we had there. Um, now f- that place was challenging. We we had to generate our own electricity. Uh, we had the biggest electricity plant in the country. We didn't have a single tar road uh, when I when I arrived there. Maybe two, three kilometers in town. That was it for the entire country. There was one bridge over the River Nile. Um, we had to pump water uh, about two, three kilometers from the Nile uh, to the brewery. We used eighteen thousand liters of diesel daily to generate electricity uh, for the plant. Um, yeah, so it was it was a it was a difficult environment to operate in. And how far is it from from the coast? No, no, no. It's uh, so you. There is no coast. You have to go yeah. through either Kenya uh, or Sudan, um, uh, port like to Port Sudan. Mm. So, but that's a thousand more than a thousand kilom- kilometers north by far. Yeah, far. There's, yeah. there's no access to the coast. So, uh, we had to import every single thing. Um, uh, and it, it it was a, a, you know the country was unsafe. Um, so, you know, hearing gunfires or gun battles, it, it was not unusual, you know. So. And how, how long did you stay there? We stayed there for almost three years. Okay. Until, um, until my, my, there was a... Yeah, so we, we were unfortunately caught there in the, in the first big civil war in South Sudan. Um, so we were trapped in the brewery for a week. Beer trucks in front of the gate, uh, tanks, tank battles just beyond the, the gates and the, and the fence full-on gun battles next to the house, you know. Uh, so that was scary. My kids were still there, and they were tiny, um, and my wife. Um, and we had no cell phone. They switched off cell phone networks. Uh, it was a scary three or four days, you know, you can imagine. Um, mm. But like South Africans do, we organized a braai, you know, <laughs> have a couple of beers, and you sit it out, you know. But, um, it was fairly tense, yeah. And how many and then, South Africans were there? No, we, we were uh, quite a bunch. I would say probably 10, 15 of us. Um, and then a number of Kenyans and Ugandans that, that worked at the plant. Um, and we had 600 employees. You know, the brewery yeah. was, was labor-intensive. Um, yeah, so, you know, after four or five days of fighting, eventually SAB organized, a, um, they opened the airport, took the tanks off the runway, uh, and SAB sent in an evacuation plane and... and you know, eventually all the nations were scrambling to get out and we managed to get on the flight back to SA, which was a relief. You know, and the that least. was the last time you were there? That was the last time I was there. It, uh, f- moved from there to Botswana for SAB, yeah. the, um, which you, you cannot get two countries more different on the continent. You know. Okay. But tell us about South Sudan. Um, what, is, what, is the, what is the history there, the fighting? and So... Listen, it's a it's a tragic uh, country. The, the north, when it was still part of Sudan, the north spent no money on development in the south, none whatsoever. Um, it is an amazing divide, Sudan. It's the divide of Christian Muslim. Okay. It's the divide of Arab Africa and Black Africa. So all that in in one country, um, and and the ruling Arab class uh, didn't spend a cent in the south. So south of Sudan was completely undeveloped but as in properly there's nothing there uh, no schools no roads no infrast- no nothing no infrastructure nothing but you go to uh, Khartoum there's you know six seven amazing bridges over the Nile and five lane highways but in the south there's nothing and then so apart from that there's also 
the tribal animosity in South Sudan, so for instance, the, like the one currently between the Nur and the Dinka, the two biggest tribes in, in South Sudan. And that was actually the start, that civil war that started when we were there was between the two ruling or two main tribes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it, it, it is a, it's a sad state of affairs, let's be honest. Yeah. And is the brewery still going now? The brewery is there, but it does not belong to SAB anymore. They, they sold it. Um, you know, Olga, the, the, the issue there was not that we couldn't sell. We could sell lots, lots of beer, soft drinks, water. That was not the problem. Um, it was that you could not convert your local currency into hard currency. So you could not pay your suppliers. Mm. Um, and, you know, eventually you sit on a mountain of money in South Sudanese pounds, but you can do nothing with it. Mm. And your, your suppliers saying, listen, we're going to stop supplying you if you don't pay us. Um, so that was the death of that brewery. It was not the fact that we couldn't sell. It was not the war. It was the fact that we couldn't get our money out. Mm. And how many salespeople did you employ there? Uh, I had three sales teams, about 20 salespeople. Okay. Yeah. They're all on motorbikes. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> that's yeah. actually a clever idea. Hey? Yeah, it worked there. You know, it was, it was rough, um, but that, they could manage the roads. You could never, you can't have a car there. there. Yeah, and deliveries? 4x4 trucks? We had big 4x4 DAFs, um, that, and even that couldn't always you know, cope with, with the road infrastructure. We had, in the wet season, sometimes trucks stuck in the mud for three, four months, you know, you could not, could not get to them. You could do nothing. They would sit there with, with the beer um, and then in the dry season, you hope that the truck can get out again. So it was, we had, we distributed beer for probably 700 Ks on the, on the Nile. Uh, so and that was probably the most reliable distribution route in the entire country. With uh, trips? Yeah. yeah well, what well, do you big call barges, yeah. barges? Wow, interesting. Yeah, so that was a, it was, it was a very interesting place to live in, yeah. And have you got photos of those barges? Yeah, I can find photos. It would be interesting yeah. to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, interesting place to live, yeah. Yeah, and then, so you say you stayed there for three, four years? Yeah, three years, yeah. Three years. Short of three years. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And then to Botswana. To then to Botswana, which was a, a big, or a steep learning curve for me, because I, I then joined, it was still part of SAB, but I looked after the no, uh, traditional African beer portfolio, so... Um, Chibuku for those that know the, mm. the brand name it's a well known brand isn't yes, it yes 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 so I, know, I knew nothing about uh, traditional African beer um, I made the you know I, I guess the I made the mistake of thinking that it's easy yeah it's, you know because it's uh, it's a cheap beer it, it, it doesn't look like it's difficult to sell but I I didn't fully appreciate that we're working with a five day shelf life yeah um, beer product and that consumers prefer day three beer. So, you know, the fact that you have day one and two beer in, this, in an outlet means nothing. That's equivalent to out of stock. You know, if you don't have day three and four beer, then, you, then you're not in the business. Uh, and trying to manage that or it was, it was the steepest learning curve of my, of my working career, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to explain that. So, yeah. so the beer lasts for five days. Yes. The consumer doesn't drink it on day one or on day or two. Day two, no, because then it's too sweet because there's too much sugar in. It's, it's still fermenting. So it's still fermenting yes. in, the, in the box. Yes. And day three, four, they'll drink it. They're happy. And day five, it expires. So um, you're lucky if somebody drinks it on day five. You know, but, so you literally have to keep the pipeline full with day three and four beer. So uh, where is that day one and two beer? Is it in the shop or is it in your warehouse? No, it must be in, it's either on the, it cannot be in the warehouse. So we, the warehouse hardly keeps stock. Um, it must be on the truck, on the way to the customer or at the customer on day two. So you, you must keep, yeah, you must keep that pipeline full. Um, so we worked 365, seven days a week, Christmas, New Year. Uh, the delivery vehicles never stop. Um, because if you you miss one day, then you, you your pipeline's got a gap in it, uh, and eventually you're going to run out of day three mm. beer. So, um, so how long does it take to d get the beer from from the factory into the customer? Are we, I think, the, our furthest supplier route was from Francis Town, where we had a brewery, to Mahun in the north, um, and so. But the 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 primary distribution truck left every night. Uh, you know, two little depots. Uh, well, yeah, to the depot in Mount uh, for the next day's distribution. So uh, it gets it gets tight. Uh, you know, at the height of summer, 
it is the expiry date is actually not five days. It makes it a bit shorter. It's it could four. be four. <laughs> yeah. So because uh, then the beer ferments, obviously, it's it's too hot. Yeah. In winter, to be honest, we had um, you know seven or eight days to work with. Okay. And then so to, what you see is in winter your volume actually goes up because you can actually work on a little bit of stock pressure, where in summer. You always walk the line of out of stock. Okay. That you must always be just too little. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you you write off stock. Yeah. Is, yeah. And who writes it off? The the, the uh, manufacturer. We, no, we. It is the understanding in the industry is that if you get stuck with expired stock, that's your problem. Okay. We we commit to minimum three deliveries a week to help you keep your pipeline full. So you you don't. There's no no need for you to overstock. Okay. So if you do actually overstock, you then it's your it, fault. It's your fault, yeah. Yeah. So how do you make that beer? Uh, well, it's maize. It's a it's a fairly simple product, you know, process. Um, you cook your maize, mm. you know, um, porridge. And, uh, yeah, make porridge um, with uh, sorghum malt um, and pitch your yeast, and there you go. You know, the, and in the box and off, uh, and there you go. And uh, so the biggest competition is probably homebrew. Homebrew in in Botswana. There's a so in Botswana we didn't have an, an official, uh, you know, opposition. But homebrew was the main opposition. Yeah, because yeah. they make so, it themselves. The customers. Exactly. So, but homebrew was only a factor if our distribution was poor. Okay. Because, because of, the, of convenience. Because of the convenience. Yes. And, so, and you don't want to wait, cook it today, and only drink it drink in three days. Three days. So the better our distribution was, and the better we kept the pipeline full the less the impact of homebrew. Wherever homebrew was an issue, I knew that our distribution was the cause. Mm. Um, so it was not, homebrew was not really a, um, a problem unless we were not on top of our game. Yeah. And is that where you told me there was quite a, SAB had a, a like yeah. a powder business yeah. as well? Yes. So the beer powder uh, product, or beer powder is a, is a phenomenal product because so you, you don't sit with the expiry problem. Okay. Um, and, you cook, you know, you brew today, drink tomorrow. So, um, or you can start drinking tomorrow, of course. But, and that helped us a lot with getting into uh, the deep rural areas like the Khalkhadi area, um, north of Maon. You know, there are certain areas where we, and that could compete directly with homebrew. So, and because it really makes it easy to mm. brew the homebrew. Um, so, what did that little kit consist of? Was it just the the the, 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 the actual plant? No, the the what the product no, the, that the, you sold. No, the uh, beer powder is very. It's just it's the maize um, uh, in a powder format with the sorghum malt powder format with yeast pitched in. Um, all you had to do was add cold water and let it stand overnight. You don't oh. have to boil it. You don't have to do any of that. So it is a simple process. We've done all that for you. Um, so that was a real competitor for for home group. And was it on the same truck? It, no, that went through the grocery. Uh, Channels, okay. So, FMCG. Yes, yes, okay. yes. So you put put that next to sugar, maize meal, and all that. So, so that it, we never sold that on the on the on the beer side of, of any of the businesses, and it also didn't go with our trucks because um, then it would compete directly. The intention was never to convert our convenience pack consumers to homebrew. Uh, it was to compete with the homebrew guy, then to convert them to Chibuku beer powder. Okay, yeah. so. Maybe I, this is an offline question, but something like king corn is that similar or is that? No, it's not similar. King corn is the uh, is is traditional beer. You cook that. That it's th it's almost a three day preparation process. Ah, okay. Yes. So that uh, it's sort of similar, but with that you still have to add sugar. You still have to add the yeast. You still have to add. So that is a co rather complicated and long process. Where we is a one day. We our product was one day product. Process. And the and the powder is that available anywhere else in the world? Or? Yeah, it's it's all over. So it's very big in South Africa. If you go to the Eastern Cape, you'll see pellets. And What's it called? Pellets, yeah. uh, 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 I can't remember now, but it, mm. yeah, there's there's quite a number. Yeah. So it's a big uh, product. And the brewery then runs every day, flat out, and it never stops. Yeah, yeah. we. We, fortunately, we had two breweries there. So when we, I don't know if you remember the tremendous drought in Botswana. So we had to, we couldn't brew in 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 Gabs. There was just no water. 
So we, the brewery in France is there to double up and supply. So that was we lost volume there. That unfortunate supply lines were long. The brewery didn't have the capacity, um, but you know, at least you could see us through. You know, but um, but that problem was resolved. So we yeah, but they, the breweries went flat out. No, there was no stopping. Mm. And then you could sell everything you made, or did you? It's a there's a very. F- uh, involved uh, forecasting process so you never brew okay. you brew on on expected forecast uh, and you make that forecast daily so you just tomorrow's we brew today for what we say we'll sell tomorrow so um, you don't brew up you, you never keep stock so it's a data driven business 100 <laughs> and, you, and your and your floor stock is maybe half a day you know so you you literally go from the from the packaging line onto the trucks and out you don't keep stock on the floor it's not that's never the intention of this business. So you'll sell, you know, a business that sells a million hectoliters will hardly have uh, warehousing. You know, it's not how it works. Yeah. You know, beer goes on the truck to the customer. And the beer business in Botswana? The normal beer? Yeah. Uh, Clear beer? Yeah, no, it did well. It was, it was maintaining, you know. It was uh, also about a 600,000 hectoliter business. Um, mainly South African brands, apart from St. Louis, which mm. is the national brand in Botswana. Um but completely 100% SAB. SAB, yeah. Yeah. The rest all imported, the opposition imported. Are there, is there a little bit of Vintuk? Yeah, but, uh, but all, the, so all the brands that you find in South Africa will find there, but uh, okay. at a price, you know. So I think the the big advantage was that we brewed locally, um, so a little bit of a price advantage. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and how long did you stay in Botswana? Three and a half years. Until, Until the SAB MBF takeover, yeah. And, and then, then we all got retrenched, and it's it was a good time for us to move back to Durban because then my oldest son was just about to go to high school. So to uh, high school. Well, well, that happens next year, but it, at least yes. it gives him a bit of a, uh, a stable base to go. You know. And and schooling in Botswana was that homeschooling uh, or no? Was no, it school? The kids were in Thornhill Primary, uh, absolutely a brilliant school. Yeah. Uh, we loved it there. Botswana is an amazing country. The expat life, eh? yeah, the expat life, and that it came to an abrupt end, Olger. Uh, but we we expected that. We, it was, and it was to be honest, part of our plan. We uh, uh, we didn't want the kids to board, so we were going to move back anyway. But mm. it, we came back two two years earlier than planned. Yeah, because of ABNB. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and uh, now you're back in Durban, mm-hmm. and it's been it's been two years now, and, and Two exciting years. Yes, I, I was nervous because I, you know, at, at first because I, you know, obviously because no, there's no jobs in Durban. There's no job in Durban, <laughs> but it's it's still a great place to live, you know. So it was our choice to move to Durban uh, without work rather than, uh, you know, maybe say Joburg where we could find something to do. Mm. Um, we wanted to to move back here. Yes, and and then the our, exciting yes. A couple of exciting things happened then, you know. I, uh, so the, what happened with the SAB Miller ABMF takeover is that, you know, a lot of the expats in Africa got retrenched and mm. they scattered all over the world to join other brewery uh, or beverage companies. So as I landed in Durban, I got a phone call from an ex-colleague of mine that worked for Awash Wines in, in Ethiopia um, and he wanted some sales development done with, with his team. Uh, and I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'll, I'll go. So I had, I had about six visits up, uh, or six weeks worth of work up in, in Ethiopia. And if you say wine, that's grapes. Yeah, it's grapes, but it's quite interesting. They make their wine from raisins. So yes, they have their own farms in Ethiopia. Uh, remember wine, the, wine farms. Yes, wine farms. Um, so the, that's the, the Italian influence, you know, from the time when the Italians were there. Okay. So, um, but they don't make their wine from grapes. They make it from their own raisins. Very sweet. Um, and it's a cultural drink. I, okay, so this is not something I understood when I got there, because I you know, wine. But it's, it's a sweet wine that they make a type of sangria with. You know, mix it with, um, with lemonade um, and half a beer. And everybody drinks that. You know, it's not a small product. It is what massive. is it called? Yes. Uh, the, well, the, I can't remember what the... No. I can't remember, yeah. But uh, f- fantastic. So it is not a difficult thing to sell because it, people want it. it. Again, I come back to my availability in price, and that was your determining factor. Yeah. So make sure it's available, make sure it's visible, and make sure that you sell it at the right price and you'll be successful. So um, 
it was just to get that discipline into the sales team. Uh, so, but in what format is this now? If, is it in seven fifty ml bottles? Like fifty ml like bottles. We, yeah, yeah. Does yeah. it look like our? It wine? It looks like our like our wine. And then they uh, mix it afterwards. Yes, they open the, they get the wine bottle, they get a jug, uh, and in the jug, then they mix it to make the sangria type pro, uh, product, and then and then people sit and enjoy that. It is it is actually quite amazing, and it tastes very nice. You know. Uh, on its own, the wine is not great, but you know, as a mix, yeah. Is, you know, so the alcohol is in the in the wine, and the, the wine, other stuff gives it, and a little bit of beer that they add. So remember, it's beer, wine, and and lemonade. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, and so, then you have that with raw meat, and then you then Bob's your uncle. You know? Raw meat. Yeah, that's the that's what the guys eat up there in in mass. You know. So. Explain that. No, that's culturally, that's uh, Ethiopians love raw meat. We um, also eat raw meat. It's yeah, called bultum. Yeah, but not dried, my friend. That is the carcass hangs there and they cut the raw meat off. And they present, cut the fat off and present it nicely on the plate. And that's, you dip it in a sauce and you eat with your okay. sangria type. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was fascinating. What an amazing country, what amazing ancient culture. Uh, that they're very proud of, you know, and they and and they have to be proud of. It. It's awesome, you know. No, it, it was an eye opener. I know one of our craft brewers always goes up to Ethiopia, mm. where it's from Diamonds in okay. Centurion, and mm-hmm. he he also makes the local um, the beer. Yes, Taj, I think they call okay, it. Okay, yes, 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 yes. And he's he's I don't know. He does some consulting. Yes. He is. Yes. He's de- he does some consulting in Ethiopia, and he, but he brews this thing locally, and he's got his little market in Joburg where the Ethiopians wow. live, and he supplies yes. them with no, the touch is it's nice. It kicks like a donkey, my friend, but it's it's very it tastes very nice. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so and it, interestingly enough, Olga, there's a uh, quite a vibrant traditional beer, uh, you know, segment in Ethiopia too. Um, I'm not saying that that beer tastes very nice. It does not taste nice at all, but uh, but it's there. Can you believe it? Yeah. So, what do you mean traditional beer? Like like Chibuku okay. type, yeah. But, um, so there is a market there, but but it's all homebrew uh, driven at the moment. No official. There's no official, you know, traditional beer business there. Okay, no no branded business. No branded business. But yeah. you said interesting that there were a lot of breweries in Botswana. I mean, in, in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, yeah. The, uh, almost all the big brewers in the world, uh, you know, are present there because you know it's the most populous landlocked country in the world i didn't know that so there's okay. yes ethiopia has got a lot of people yeah um and they don't mind drinking uh drinking alcohol so you know you want to be there it's just it's an extremely competitive uh market um and you know in my opinion a very difficult place to operate because the brewers fight on price rather than on brand equity um, which makes it difficult to 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 establish a brand if you don't Basically, the lowest common denominator is price, and that's what they fight on. Um, so it's not it's not a market that I would I would want to join, for instance. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. I was uh, approached by Andre Passman, and he mm-hmm. says, "Don't you know a retired beer guy? We want to establish a draft beer business in Ethiopia." And I yeah. said, "Oh, that sounds interesting." But it was only for your contract, and uh, yeah. you know, what do you do afterwards? Correct. Correct. But I, listen, if you've got nothing to do for the year, go there because yeah. it's a great country to, to, to experience, to experience uh, yeah. and definitely worth going. Um, but uh, extremely competitive beer business. Uh, yeah. Very, very much. So one of the brewers, I don't know what, what it's called, is owned by the Swinkles, the Bavaria Breweries. Yes. And then Vasari Beverages also owns a brewery, and that's uh, Dashin, I think. Yes. So Dashin is big. Uh, uh, the Swinkles family, is their brand's uh, Habesha. Okay. Um, and it's a fantastic brand name. They really hit it on the nail there. Uh, the Ethiopians associate with Habesha. That's the little, uh, it's like a little boy with the with the little afro. Uh, you know, that's the the logo, uh, and you see that all over Ethiopia. So they they really nailed it from a naming point of view and a uh, and a and a logo. Um, and the brand's doing extremely well. It's good beer. Well, all the beer in Ethiopia, is, I can tell you, is great quality. So, but they mm. their beer is also fantastic. Yeah. Okay, but what's what for me is interesting that Vasari, which is owned by Vivian Immerman, mm. and now Vivian is a South African, who now also owns KWV yeah. or his company, and they say he's the second wealthiest beverage entrepreneur or liquor entrepreneur in the UK. 
Wow. He he bought White and Mackay and sold mm. it for a fortune. One of the big Scottish distillers mm. and. Yeah, and he also owns KWV now. Yeah. And obviously, he's invested in Ethiopia. Yeah. I think they also have bakeries and other food products in uh, food mm. companies in, in Ethiopia. Yeah, I've been to their brewery, uh, one of their breweries there, and they, they run a good business. Okay, and then how long were you involved in Ethiopia? You said you yeah. did a couple of trips. So I it did wasn't a few a trips for, uh, for Awash, and then I also did some work for Zebedar, which is one of the smaller uh, breweries owned by, by a Belgian family. Um, they have since been bought out by one of the big brewers. Uh, but Zebedar was also a, a nice brand, a beautiful brewery, uh, about 100 150k out of Addis. Um, and I did some field work with their, with their sales team, which was great. Uh, and the product, normal lager or Belgian beer? No, normal lager. Uh, so that seems to be the... You know what the goes, African goes beer. Well, yes, you know, like standard middle of the range, you know, lager. Um, but again, great quality. Uh, you know, f- f- good brand. It's nothing, you know, great. It's just very competitive market, and I, yeah. I think for a smaller brewer to survive will be difficult in Ethiopia. You know, the big guys will eat you. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's then my Ethiopian adventure came to an end. Um, uh, but not long after that, I got a phone call from Cambodia. So who, who's in Cambodia that knows you? Another ex-SAB <laughs> Scattered. Di- director that, that ended up there, and they needed some sales development done for for, for their sales team. Uh, so explain to us where Cambodia is. So Cambodia is uh, Southeast Asia. It's just south of Vietnam, Thailand, um, Laos. So... Uh, on the coast, or uh, is everything well, it's on the coast? Uh, but not not as not not as long as some of the other Asian countries or East Asian countries. Um, a very active beer market, you know, per capita consumption of over sixty liters, uh, which I you know I wasn't prepared, you know, I wasn't I didn't expect that. Um, mm. So massive family business, five million hectoliter plus. A local family. Local family. Um, they they. They're really into construction, cement production, banking. Uh, the the beer business is just an afterthought, you know. Uh, and they and they have a five million hectoliter business. So to put uh, five million hectoliters into perspective, we googled what Heineken is. Heineken, yeah. And they, so City Bank in South Africa is their capacity is seven and a half million hectoliters. So that's the capacity. Capacity when of the brewery. Uh, yeah. These guys are selling five million hectoliters, and it's a. One family owns it. Yeah. Un- and the surname is not Heineken. It's not Heineken. <laughs> Somebody uh, that we're not... No, we're not familiar with. Yeah. yeah. So, Hoga, uh, that was an eye-opener. Uh, you know, the East Asian market is extremely competitive. Uh, so, this brewery sells water, soft drinks, energy drinks, juice, and beer. But Any not, brands that we know? Uh, no, you won't. It's all local. local so, we, local I think brands. we only know Bintang or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. No, no, it's all... Locally launched Cambodian uh, uh, brands, um, but ninety-five percent of their volume still comes from one brand, one pack. It's Cambodia Lager, and it's in a can. So wow! Interesting. Yeah. And the competition? Uh, everybody's there. Uh, Heineken's there. Carlsberg's uh, there. Guinness. You know, so everybody. Okay. Um, they are the biggest lager producers, but I think their share is thirty-five percent of the market. So you know, the rest in all a smaller share, like, uh, but it's extremely competitive, and you also compete against imported products from uh, Thailand uh, and so forth. So it is, it's a competitive market, uh, by a fantastic world-class brewery, uh, excellent quality, really good brand, and brand name strong. And how did you end up there? Oh, you got a call. Yes, got a call from... Uh, from the Old Boys Club. The Old Boys Club, yeah. So, uh, you know, I did about a year's work. I did eight or nine trips to Cambodia, really worked with the reps. We did some theory, uh, but a lot of my, my time there was spent working with the guys in the field. Um, again, working on simple things like visibility, availability, price, uh, building that relationship, getting the call schedules right. Um, amazing business, yeah. It was, a, it was a privilege to go there. Yeah, so, I've, I mean... Uh, the more we talk, the more I realize this old boys club is working. It's it's work is active. <laughs> yeah. Have you got a WhatsApp group? No, not we're not there. Yet. We're not there yet. We're working on it. Yeah. yeah. So I I just remember now that um, your old boys club also worked when you were at Bavaria. 
because you had a you had yes. a story. You wanted yeah. to paddle across one of the lakes you mentioned is, yes. earlier, Lake Tanganyika, yeah. was it? Yeah, so it was a dream of mine. So Lake Tanganyika is the longest lake in the world, and it's in the world in the world. Yeah, so okay. it's, ne it's never been kayaked before uh, 2008, and um, so we, I wanted to be the first one to do it. So me and my friend Mornay uh, and a Decided to to go for it again over a couple of beers and a braai. Said, okay, well, well, it's a much better idea than starting a brewery yes, over a couple of beers. No, hundred no, percent. Well, that, my wife wouldn't agree, but anyway. So, <laughs> so eventually we. Uh, what we, year was this? It was two thousand and eight. Two thousand. When I worked for Bavaria, yeah. Yeah. And then Auger, we um, we managed to get a kayak sponsored by Paddleyak um, Johan Luitz down in in Hautbai, and he. He got the, the, it was a double kayak that he made for us, uh, Paddle Yak Swift, and he, he got it up to Joburg, but we had to still get it from Johannesburg to the, to the southern end of Lake Tanganyika, which is a thousand kilometers north of Lusaka, so it is, it's very far from, from Johannesburg. Uh, and that's where the, the beer network kicked in. Yes, the old boys club. Yes, because I asked, uh, our, our transporter at the time that took beer to the southern Congo, uh, I forgot, I forgot their name now. Uh, Moody Blues. So I asked the guys from Moody Blues, guys, can can you perhaps take this guy and drop it for us in Lusaka? And they said, yeah, no worries. They put it on the beer truck. How did you get to Lusaka? No, on his on on the Bavaria beer that we exported to to the Southern Congo. Uh. So he was on his way to Lubumbashi, and he had to pass Lusaka. So I said to him, Sakis, you're gonna go past Lusaka. Just drop it for me at the at SAB there. <laughs> And he said, yeah, no problems. And I phoned my friends at SAB and said, can you, will you receive a kayak for me? I said, yeah. <coughs> so the kayak made it to Lusaka uh, for free. And then I phoned my friend at, at uh, Zambian Breweries, uh, Ant Grenin. I said, Ant, you know, don't you have a, a distributor up north there near Kasama? He said, yeah, no problem. We've got it. I said, can you take my kayak on the beer truck? He said, yeah, no problem. So the kayak would load it on the beer truck <laughs> and made it about 1,000 kilometers to Kasama which is still 100 k's from, from Lake Tanganyika. And when we and Morna arrived there by bus one morning, the, the, the kayak was there. The first time we saw it, the kayak was there uh, at the distributor. And we waited there from four in the morning. We Eventually, he opened and gave us the kayak. And I phoned the rep because I trained all the reps. I said, where are you calling today? He said, no, no, you're in Kasama. I said, no, you're not. You're going to Lake Tanganyika. So bring that bucky of yours. So he brought his bucky. <laughs> put the kayak on, on the back of the buck, he stepped it in, and that's how we made the last 100 k's to the lake. So we got it from Joburg to Lake Tanganyika on the back of beer trucks for free. That is unbelievable. Yeah. And how did you get there? Uh, we uh, we flew to Lusaka, yeah. took a local bus to Kusama and on the back of the reps bucky for the last 100 kilometers. <laughs> and then, uh, Holger, we jumped in the, in the kayak and kayaked 800 kilometers uh, for over the next four weeks. So I'm not um, sure what, what is more interesting, getting there or the... No, the, the getting there was, was, is a great story to tell. The, the next 24, 24, 25 days is just kayaking like hell, you know, to get to Burundi. So we kayaked through Zambia, through Tanzania. And Did you have to get stamps on your passport? Yes, yes, yes. The, 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 somehow we managed to find, you know, immigration officials... Uh, in their huts or under, you know, what's it, the mango tree or the, uh, the um, crossing from Tanzania to Burundi, we asked the Tanzanian immigration guys, you know, where do we find the Burundian immigration guy? They said, no, under the second mango tree. And Truce Bob, he was sitting there on his chair under the second mango tree and he stamped our passports and there we were. And then uh, 20, well, a month later, we kayaked into Bujumbura and ran out of lake. And then we were the first guys to have kayaked the world's longest lake. But was there a beer rep waiting for you there? There wasn't a beer rep waiting for us. As a matter of fact, it was the the biggest anticlimax ever because there was nobody waiting for us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we 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 ended up at a hotel called Nyanza Luck and they had plenty of beer. So we, we bought our own Primus and then and celebrated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wonderful. So, um, and what did you what did you eat? We so we carried a lot of food uh, okay. with us, uh, which also came on the beer truck. No, that we came with us in our backpacks. You know, uh, we actually loaded the kayak only on the shores before we started, and then. But I also bought fish and tomatoes and onions and stuff from the local villages. Um, mostly we avoided them because you get absolutely swamped. You know, mm. um, so we, we tried to, you know, get little secluded beaches to sleep on. Lake Tanganyika is very 
sparsely populated. Hardly anybody lives there, so um, it's it's quiet. You know. My daughter wanted to know if there were crocodiles. Plenty. Plenty. Plenty and lots of hippos. hippos yes. Um, okay. And massive waves. It's oh. a big lake. It's the lake is fifty kilometers wide on average. It's the shoreline was eight hundred kilometers, and then um, and it's at one point four kilometers deep. So you know it is. So no falling off. It's a serious, serious piece of water, and some, yeah, it's big. So tell us a little bit of, about the challenges on on the water. Uh, size of the waves. Okay. Yeah. Um, we had three three meter swells uh, what? with white water breaking over us. Um, wind was a serious problem. You know, in the, especially in the afternoons, um, and then I, I think. The biggest challenge was probably the mental issue of spending, you know, four weeks with one other guy, yeah, um, and no other source of conversation, you know, that because um, physically week one was difficult, but you know after that you used to it and you kayak eight hours a day. So that's it's repet- it's repetitive. So you every day, and that thing that was the that was the real challenge was the mental challenge of getting up every day, kayaking for eight hours, and going to sleep again, and. You or you never try sand in your food, sand in your sleeping bag. You know those small things. You know because mm. um, for the rest, you you know it's something everybody can do. It's just the mental part of it is mm. the difficult one. And nobody's ever done it before. Yeah, and then you know we were nervous going into Burundi. The country was still at civil war. Um, so the last five days we had to kayak through a war-torn country, and that we were. We were very nervous. We had a long discussion sitting at the border. So the previous expedition that didn't complete actually decided not to go into Burundi. Otherwise, they would have they would have done it. It is just so that that was very scary. As a matter of fact, we finished. Three of us finished. A third guy joined us on the Burundi border uh, from the previous expedition uh, to kayak the last five days. So and who was that? that was, was it Brent, Brent Wibberley? So Brent Wibley, myself, and Mornay Smith were the So three South there. African guy. Yeah, okay. so South Africans. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And what happens when you land in Burundi? You say nobody's waiting there. For nobody's you. waiting there. Um, but fortunately, I had some. So remember, we li- did live in uh, in Mwanza. So friends from Mwanza drove all the way to Burundi um, to pick us up and take us back to Mwanza, and we we flew back. Remind back me where that was. Which country? Tanzania. Tanzania. That's Tanzania. And how far was that? No, that's a long drive. That's also over a thousand kilometers. Okay. But they were quite keen to see us finish. So, okay, it's a long story, but uh, they they were actually in Burundi, and they all the expats came out in their boats to meet us on a on a sandy island just outside Burundi. And we all had breakfast there, um, and then they were supposed to meet us there as a welcoming party when we finished. But they all got stuck in the beers and they forgot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they lost track of time so when we finished we were the only ones on the beach we had to wait for them to come and take <laughs> pictures of us uh, so the guys picked us up there and drove us all the way back to TZ uh, <laughs> and we flew back yeah there. sounds like lovely lovely stories yeah it's all good memories and uh, what, are, what are your plans now are You what are you doing oh, now okay, I'm still consulting but I, I signed a short a contract with United National Breweries um, to look after KZN, the KZN sales. Which is Ejuba. Ejuba, yeah, traditional African beer and Macheu on the non-alcoholic side. Um, it's it's a business with amazing potential um, and again, you know, it's just getting the basics in place which we'll be working on now. Um, yeah, so so for the next six, seven months I'm going to, I'm dedicated to, to make that business in KZN work, yeah. And why, why a six-month contract? It could be could be longer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is that from your side or from their side? I, I think it's a mutual by mutual agreement. Okay. You know, uh, I I like the flexibility of of being a consultant, um, but I, I I also love getting stuck in. So mm. you know, it works for for both parties. Yeah. And tell us about that business because for us, I mean, I can remember as a child, my my friend had a trading store, and mm. the Injuba truck would arrive, yes. and uh, it was. In those days, we sold those twenty-five liter drums, yes. most yeah. mainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and obviously the the ready to drink or the mm. the small one liter yes, packs. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there was a story you had to like make a hole in the in the pack. Do you still yeah. do that? I'm not so sure about that piece, but there it was, was a nail just yes. for making holes. Yeah, no, I don't think the it's, it's probably not 
necessarily there should be a hole in for for the fermentation for, bre- okay. yeah, for breathing um nothing much has changed Olga, since since those days you know volume has gone down a little bit the business has been consolidated they closed some breweries um including the one in the big one in Kangela which which came with its challenges now for us from a long supply line so uh, where do you get your stock from yeah, we are from either from Poch of Sturm or from Pretoria and it's also and it's, seven days or well, if you're lucky you've got seven days in summer we were working with four or five days and that's the the real challenge so how do you how do you sell beer in Zululand that came from Pretoria and you only have four days from from brewing to expiry you know so uh, in summer, so so all the craft brewers must stop whining. They must stop whining. If they really want to see it, how difficult uh, or difficult business, let them come and join our business in summer. But there's a demand for your product. There's a demand, Olga. Uh, um, of course, we can only deliver to licensed outlets. So you, you know, the challenge is really to get as close to your consumer as possible uh, with a short, and then make sure that your products ready to drink when they get it. You know, so okay, that must have changed because the trading store was. My, my friend had a trading store, not a bottle store. Mm. And in those days, they could have, I guess it was a different license. It, they could have a, a, a sorghum license it, it's for, possible, for a it's trading possible, store. Yeah, but, but we have to stay on the right side of the law. So, mm. you know, so there's license. no difference. I guess now only bottle stores can sell. It's bottle stores and, and taverns and so forth. Yeah. yeah. And in rural areas where those are few and far between, but there's a demand for the product, that's, that's where... The, the complexity comes in so you don't have days to work with yeah. but you need to penetrate rural areas so um, it, it's a little bit complicated from that point of view you know it's a it's a distribution business auger you know if you how do you get it to the as close to the final consumer with the time frame that you've got and that's the that's where the complexity lies yeah, yeah. Okay. and how much competition have you got uh, no, there's no real uh, competition on the on the packaged beer side, but on the beer powder side, we've got competition. So, and remember, I said earlier in, the, in our conversation, if you if your distribution's poor, then pack, then beer powder will take over that market because the demand is there. People will drink traditional beer. If it's packaged beer or not, that is up to us. Yeah. So we we have to make sure that our su- supply is up to scratch so that we don't have to compete with pack, uh, with beer powder yeah give us an idea of the the size of this business is it a big business it's a big business okay Olga. we've got hundreds of trucks yeah. uh, uh, primary distribution trucks run day and night you can imagine uh, you know from the brewery to supply we will receive three interlinks here in Kwamashu a day um, okay and that's so that will have to be redistributed mm. and sold uh, and quite far, because if you're going from yes. Kamasa all the way to Zululand. All the way to Zululand, in Guavuma, right up near Kozibay. On the flats. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's far. We, we cover the, the whole of South Africa. Every day. Yeah, every day. Yeah. yeah, so it's like the bread guys, except you don't have a bakery in every town. Correct. That is, <laughs> and that is, yeah, it is exactly like that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting business, and how you've you've come back to that... Um, sorghum, how it's stand- I mean, you obviously got this this gig because you had some experience. Yes, but there's something about the sorghum business, Olga, that's very interesting. It gets in, in into your blood. I think it's the complexity of it. So mm. if I look back at the clear beer business now, it, it is it is simplistic. Mm. You know, you've got six months or four months shelf life to work with. You can create stock pressure. You can, but with our business, it's not. You must be hands on. It is day to day, and it, it, it's. The energy in the system is fantastic. You know, if I, it is it is far more vibrant than than the clear, clear beer business because you have to be so hands on. You have to live and breathe this product. Otherwise, you will either run out of stock or you have have expired stock. So, um, and I like that energy. It's, yeah, it's a different energy. Yeah. And then you have another product which reminds me of my days when I was about thirteen years old. We used to in rural KwaZulu Natal. We have our tennis coaching on a Friday afternoon and yeah. on the way to the tennis courts or the tennis club there was a little tea room and we'd buy banana mahir. Yes, yes. And that was our lunch. Yeah. Now, now you also sell that. Yeah, so we sell uh, mahir as part of our portfolio. It's currently not not a big part but it's yeah. a, um, a product that I think has got amazing legs. You know, it's just, yeah. well the fact that you can, it's non-alcoholic so it just opens up every grocery that you, that you go past, you know. It's, it's a food supplement, yeah. um, so it's it's great for rural kids. You know, it's it's available 
got different flavors. So, uh, yeah, that's I, I'm very excited about the the Macheu part of our business. Okay, yeah, for me that was always a, a, a lovely snack. Yeah, and yeah. I mean everybody else. If you didn't grow up with it, it, yes. it wasn't something that no, you would funny. drink. My, my kids don't like it. I love it. I, I still drink it regularly, you know, when I do trade visits. Uh, but for, my kids are not not that into it. But I, for me, it's the equivalent of yogi but just maize-based, you know. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess you <laughs> like it or you don't, but I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, Louis, thanks for joining me today. And uh, now the listeners will know why. I say that you are probably the most traveled beer rep in in, in Africa. <laughs> yeah. You've seen a lot of countries. How many countries have you visited in Africa? No, uh, 15, 16. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful stories. Yeah, Olga, thanks for, for your time too. Yeah, yeah. Inviting me. Lovely. And uh, if you ever, do you still do, obviously you, you're full-time employed now for these six months and yeah. then are you still looking for gigs on, on sales training? Or yeah, what yeah. Is if anybody needs sales development done <laughs> f- uh, for their teams, I'm, I'm there. You know, I'm hands-on. I, I love being in the trade. Uh, I can help with strategy, anything that, yeah. So if, there's, if you need something done, I'm there. Yeah, there you go. Louis worked all over the, the world. Thank you. And... Uh, Good luck with your selling sorghum and machio. Thanks, Olga. <laughs> Cheers. Yes. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.